to Fallbrook last time and did not forget about you. And I uh, very much uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak um, to you this weekend. Uh, we're going to be actually um, not giving the same message now as we will be uh, at the 11 o'clock hour. It's going to be part one and part two of emotional intelligence. But uh, in order to introduce emotional intelligence, we first have to define what it is. And it's actually understanding your emotions and the emotions of others and responding to those emotions in a what type of way? A healthy way. It sounds um, rather simple, but obviously uh, there's quite a bit involved in this. And uh, our research, actually, uh, we just uh, published in a peer-reviewed journal our research on emotional intelligence in our eight-week mental health education program. And what we found out is that by actually learning how the brain works and putting this into practice, our emotional intelligence can go up significantly in just eight weeks. In fact, the vast majority of attendees had a dramatic improvement in their emotional intelligence. And what this study and other studies indicate is our behaviors powerfully influence our thoughts and emotions. This is one of the reasons why the Bible is interested in behaviors, uh, is because they actually do powerfully influence our thoughts and emotions. But it's our thoughts that actually cause our emotions and behavior. And this is why the Bible is not only just talking about behaviors, it's talking about our thoughts. It's a good exercise to actually go through a concordance and look at all of the uh, references to thinking and actually analyzing our thoughts and trying to correct those thoughts. Uh, and uh, therefore, our emotional intelligence can improve. Now, there's a lot of influences on our emotional intelligence. Getting enough sleep getting good nutrition, uh, these things are, are critically important. Even exercise, physical exercise can play a role. But the most major influence on emotional intelligence, not only according to our research, but the research of others that have um, published before us, is that our emotions are largely controlled by our beliefs, our evaluation of events, the way we think about problems, and our silent self-talk. Those are the moment-by-moment -moment messages we are giving ourselves. It turns out your feelings simply result from the messages you give yourself. That means your thoughts have much more to do with how you feel than what is actually happening in your life. One of the classic examples of this is Paul and Silas, who were taken against their will. They were beaten with rods. Their backs were laid open. They had done nothing wrong to deserve this. And now they're put on not a nice carpet floor like this, but an irregular dirt floor with rocks in it. Their feet are put up in stocks. And the Bible says they were crying uncontrollably in prison and saying, why us, Lord? <laughs> You're familiar with the story, I can tell. What were they doing? They had happy looks on their faces, singing praises to God. Why is that the case under that type of situation? Because their thoughts had much more to do with how they were feeling than what was happening in their life. 
And they weren't thinking pop psychology thoughts. Pop psychology thoughts would have said, imagine that you're on a beach in Oceanside. Uh, that would have worked for no more than 1.2 seconds. Reminders of where they were would have come back, and they would have been miserable again. But they were thinking true and accurate thoughts, and those true and accurate thoughts were so powerful that even under the most adverse situation, they could actually have a stable emotions and actually be happy in that type of situation. Well, I'm not going to go into three emotional intelligence stories today, but I am going to go into um, at least one. We'll see how we do uh, with this. But I'd like to have you open your Bibles today. And we're going to go into... The story of someone who was beautiful is how uh, we could even go back further. But you know, one of the things that um, we've noticed in our depression and anxiety recovery program, at least our staff thinks though, of course we're seeing the changes that take place in them in our 10-day program, but often, and, and this isn't a study, so okay, this is just opinions of our staff, um, often um, there have been remarks that, you know, the ones that have some of the worst emotional problems are some of the most beautiful people <laughs> on the outside. So you can have tremendous beauty, uh, but still on the inside have significant emotional issues. I'll, all we have to do is look at Hollywood, I think, and figure out that that can be true. Uh, but I remember I had, uh, you know, it, it, it's good to instruct people like this. I remember um, after my two oldest sons uh, moved away to go to a, um, an academy, our third son um, felt pretty much alone. And so he wanted a dog. And so we went and got him a dog. It was a Sheltie. But if you would look at this Sheltie, it would melt your eyes. It was the most beautiful dog that you would cast your eyes on. And it had those soft, um, tender eyes, and it melted his heart as well. But this dog had significant emotional issues. <laughs> In fact, I almost started in a depression and anxiety recovery program for dogs <laughs> as a result of it. But this dog had anxiety. It would want outside, and as soon as it got outside, it would bark to be let inside. And as soon as it got inside, it wanted outside again. And it was, um, uh, we're not sure what background it came from, uh, but it had some significant emotional issues. And it became a good learning experience for Nathan by saying, just because something is very, very beautiful doesn't mean they've got it all together. Well, in Genesis chapter 29, in verse 17, we see two women compared here. It says, Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was what? Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. So this was a woman who was very beautiful in form and in face, 
She was just striking. It didn't have, she didn't have to really try to turn on the charm. It just came naturally. In verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. I think that's probably a pretty good litmus test before someone gets married. Are you willing to work for her for seven years? <laughs> uh, and it tells you about the the tremendous um, affection that Jacob developed for her. And of course, many of you know the story in regards to after the seven years, it just seemed like a few days. And then Rachel is is, um, there at the wedding, or maybe she wasn't at the wedding, but Leah ends up being the one under the veil getting married, and a major deception takes place. And then the father says, you need to give me seven more years to get this one. And we have the setup for a dysfunctional home. Despite the fact that this happened, notice chapter 30, verse 1. Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children. And Rachel did what to her sister? Envied her sister. So there's jealousy in the household. And said unto Jacob, give me children or else I die. Now, was that a rational statement? No. And in fact, Jacob recognized it was irrational and said, why am I getting the blame for this? I'm actually with you much more than I am with Leah. You don't have any children. She has children. Am I in the place of God where I have prevented you from having children? Tries to give her a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy (laughs) in regards to think rationally about this. I don't like the situation either, but be rational about it. And so after that encouragement for rational thinking, verse 3 She said, Behold my maid Bilhah, go in unto her, and she shall bear upon my knees, and I may also have children by her. So because of this envy and jealousy, she ends up offering her maid to Jacob so that she can own those children. Would we call that an emotionally healthy response? there were significant dysfunctional emotional issues in that home. And Rachel was one of the key elements of of this emotional problem. We could go into some of the other Rachel's problems, you know. She um, actually could turn on the charm even to her father, you know. Cute little girls can sometimes even fool their fathers. And the father is there looking for his idol, And Rachel is on her period, or at least says she's on her period, and does not get off of the place where she's sitting because she's sitting on those idols. She's the one who stole them and was not honest about it. Again, not an emotionally healthy response. And now notice the response of her sister Leah, verse 9. When Leah saw that she had left bearing and saw what Rachel had done, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her Jacob to wife. 
and that first baby was called Gad because Leah recognized, boy, this is really productive, and she says, a troop come, that cometh. In other words, we're having lots of kids here. It's like we're creating an army here. And then notice the jealousy continues, verse 15. Uh, actually, back up to 14. Rachel said to Leah, give me, I pray thee, all of thy son's mandrakes. It was beautiful flowers, and she wanted them that Reuben had picked. And Leah says unto her, is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband? Hmm, it's interesting. This is now Leah's husband, not Rachel's. And wouldest thou take away my son's mandrakes also? And so Rachel said, all right, give me the mandrakes and I'll give you him tonight. These are things that are not normally preached in sermons. We don't like to, we kind of like to ignore this element of the Bible. But this is what happened. This is, and you know, we're told the Bible is actually, the reason why these stories were preserved is because they're more for our day than the day in which they occurred. Are there dysfunctional homes? In today, are there dysfunctional homes that even have religious people in those homes? Absolutely. This was a religious home, and it was severely dysfunctional with jealousies of women and other women bearing children. And in reality, we could say Gad, we could say all of these others, these kids should have never come about. They should have never happened had the Lord's will been followed in regards to emotional intelligence. But we actually know that these were all included as the 12 sons of Jacob. And these are also mentioned in a positive light as far as a forerunner for us in the kingdom above. And so, even though these things really should not have happened, God still wants to enter into dysfunctional homes and heal the emotional problems that are going on there. I'd like to, I haven't done this before, we're a small group, but I think you can be transparent about this. A little background about what I'm going to ask you. Uh, anyone want to guess what percent of homes today are raised by both biological father and biological mother from age 0 to 18? Anyone want to guess what percent? Before I ask you to stand up if you were in that category, which I will ask you, uh, if, if you are in that category where you were raised by both your biological mother and biological father, um, in a home all the way up until adulthood, we'll say age 18. But before you stand up, uh, uh, I'd like to see if you know what the percentage is today of kids being raised in that environment. Anyone want to guess? You want to guess? 20%. 20%. Yeah. It's actually a little less than 25%. And this is significant. Studies show that if you're not raised in a two-parent home, and of course, many times they're being raised by both biological father and mother for a while, but they're trading back and forth. 
And at those early ages, they're competing for who's going to be the most popular parent because as soon as the kid gets a certain age, they're going to be able to choose which one that they're with primarily. And often, the choice that these kids make are very short-sighted. We just had a person in our program that way who was having panic disorder, all sorts of problems at age 19, but she chose to live with her mother because her mother never disciplined her. And her mother would have men in the household all the time, um, having uh, marital relations with all sorts of men that she wasn't married to, and of course gave her daughter all of this permission, but the daughter ended up such an emotional wreck. By age 19, her father sent her to our program. And I asked her, I said, knowing what you know now, where would you have chosen at age 10 to live? And she says, I should have lived with my father. But he had rules, he had structure, he had discipline, and I didn't want any of it. Uh, and so now we're having to go to much more extreme measures to help her. Fortunately, even she was helped. In fact, it's amazing when people are so young and sometimes, well, there's always a different set of circumstances, but by day four in the program, her panic went away completely and she's never had another panic episode. But the Lord can enter in, in even in the situations like this. So I am interested. What, uh, those of you that were raised in a two-parent home by both biological parents, zero to 18, stand up here today. Wow. All right. Those of you, go ahead and sit down. Those of you who were not raised by both biological parents at the same time, zero to 18, go ahead and stand up. Okay, can you see the difference it makes even in church attendance? What we're finding out is you are not a representative group of the general public here today, and the advantages of being raised by a two-parent home are obvious. There are some significant advantages of that. Now go ahead and sit down, but praise God for those of you that had problems in your upbringing and had dysfunction but are still here learning from the word of God. But I can tell you, the Lord wants us to be able to help all of these people that are raised in dysfunctional homes. Help every kid who really should not have been born had the Lord's plan been followed. Maybe there would have been another child born instead that we don't have, but God wants to enter in even to situations like this. Well, the dysfunction is significant, very significant. It even gets extreme. Let's go to chapter 34. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, this is verse one, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. She's surrounded by a bunch of boys. And she finds some girls in her neighborhood and says, you know, these, these people are like me. They seem like they're going to have fun. Let's just go have fun with them. And off she goes without appropriate supervision. And verse 2 tells us what happened. Shechem, the son of Hamer, the Hivite, the prince of the country, saw her, he took her, lay with her, defiled her. But even though he had done this to her, he had an affection for her. 
And this girl also probably had tender eyes, had those mother's eyes and was, and was beautiful. And so Shechem was really very interested in this girl. In his soul, verse three, clave unto Dinah. He loved the damsel, spake kindly unto her. So this was not a, uh, even though it was a forced act, um, it was not an act of, of necessarily just um, as he would say today, and I've heard many people <laughs> that have come to my program say, you know, it wasn't just about the sex. There was more involved in it. And so uh, it wasn't just about the sex. He did have some affection uh, for her. And so she, he speaks to his father and says, do what's necessary. Let's have this girl become my wife. Well, in order for that to happen, you had to have some agreement from the family. And so this guy is actually a king of this area. So he has lots of money, lots of things underneath him, and he said, I can probably pay, it's probably going to be a huge dowry. By the way, the dowry of a virgin back then was extremely high, even if you weren't a king. <laughs> and so this guy had gotten a virgin, and so the dowry he knew was going to be extremely high. And so he goes there ready to give up a whole lot so that his son can have this girl. Jacob did hear about it, verse 5, but he's, he's holding his peace until he hears from, Shem, from Shechem. But it turns out, when Shechem was coming over with Hamor, the brothers ran into him first. And so they never did get to Jacob. They only got to the brothers. And of course, the brothers are older, and so they're telling the story. They're getting ready for all of this story. And, you know, if these boys were truly interested in serving the Lord, they would have acted far differently. You know, one of the things that I've learned is for every disappointment, there is an appointment if we follow God's plan. There can be tremendous trauma and disappointment. But God can turn disappointments into appointments. And he could have even here. There was actually a wonderful opportunity for these boys to share with this nation the love of God. They would have been very open to this at this point. And they would have been able to actually see the beauties of the oracles of God that he had given Jacob in Israel. But instead, they went to one religious rite. They did turn to religion, but they went to a rite that they knew would be the hardest rite for this heathen king and heathen prince and all of the others to partake of. And they said, you know what? We have something in our religion. And if you honor, you're going to have to do this. Father's going to have to be circumcised, the prince is going to have to be circumcised, and your entire nation, all the men, are going to need to be circumcised. They didn't explain any of the reasons behind it. They just went to the most difficult right. Firstly, because they thought there's no way these guys are going to do it. They don't love her that much. And secondly, they had another plan just in case. And, you know, to undergo adult circumcision is pretty tough. 
I remember I went to medical school about an hour away from here at Loma Linda University. And when I was a medical student, I had to do a history and physical on a man who was going to have to undergo a circumcision the next morning. And you know, if you haven't been circumcised as an infant, um, sometimes you have to be circumcised later because of disease and other types of things and problems that enter in. And of course, the disease is much less if you have been circumcised or the, the chance of that. But anyways, this man was having to undergo a circumcision. And I said, sir, I must admit, I really feel sorry for you. He says, what do you mean? I said, I had to undergo this, and I couldn't walk for an entire year afterwards. Really? He said. And then I had to tell him, I had it as an infant. That's why I couldn't walk for an entire year. (laughs) And uh, he felt better about that then. (laughs) But I can tell you, you're going to have problems walking for some time. And notice, let's see, where is it? It gets pretty bad here. And so they consent. They not only consent, the father, the son, the whole nation undergoes this circumcision. And then, while they're still sore, verse 25, there's two of them that get loose, Simeon and Levi, sons number two and three, and they took each man his sword, came upon the city boldly, and slew all of the males. These are ruthless murderers, filled with hatred, filled with revenge. And yeah, you know, I can understand. I know many an individual who said, if someone violates my daughter, I don't care if I go to prison. I'm going to kill them. But that actually isn't the Christian response. It's not God's way of handling these things. He wants disappointments to turn into appointments. And so they had a wonderful opportunity and they totally blew it. And Jacob is so distraught over this. Jacob knew this was way, way out of line. And he said, you're gonna actually ruin the entire covenant God made. God told us that we're going to be a great nation and you have just totally blown it because now our nation's going to be wiped out. Anyone who hears about this is going to wipe us out. And he was right. They actually would have had the Lord not intervened to protect Jacob. And so with this type of dysfunction, unfortunately, it gets worse. Rachel finally does have a son. And this son is different. He's more naturally obedient. Have you noticed that some kids are more naturally obedient than others? A few years after he's born, he's about age four, his mother dies from childbirth of delivering her second son. And what trauma enters into Jacob's life? The love of his life dies at a tender young age. But then, for every disappointment, there's also what? An appointment. Jacob, as a result, with all of the jealousy in the household, he could not leave to any other woman to raise Joseph. 
He knew that it wouldn't be safe, and he knew the trauma would continue. And so he tells his older brothers, you're going to have, not his older brothers, his older sons, you're going to have to take over my business because I'm going to do the home things here. I'm going to become Mr. Mom, and I'm going to raise Joseph. And actually, I think it was part of the Lord's plan. The Lord knew there was such dysfunction in the home that Joseph was going to come out really bad as well. And so he took the best person in the position to raise Joseph. And Joseph and Jacob developed a relationship that was extremely close. And with Joseph being naturally obedient and so happy a kid, Jacob unwisely could not help himself of showing his affection back. And then he creates for him this beautiful coat of many colors. And the other brothers start getting jealous. First of all, Joseph finds out they're doing some things that are not best, and he comes and reports it to Jacob, and then Jacob talks to the brothers about it, but they knew that Joseph was the one who narked on him. And then it gets worse. Joseph, chapter 37 now. This is right after he told some things to them. There's some envy as well. He has some dreams and that sort of thing. But... uh, Verse 13, Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem. Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. They can't find the brothers. They've been gone for several months now feeding these sheep. And Jacob says they were last in Shechem. And you know what was in Shechem. (laughs) And so Jacob had some reason to fear. He was still fearing about consequences of these murders. And so he said, Joseph, go out and find him. Report to me. We need to have a report. And and Joseph said, I'm willing to do whatever you ask me to do, Dad. And so he goes out looking for them. And he can't find them, even in Shechem. Verse 17, they departed hence, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. Dothan was 15 miles away from Shechem. And we were told... Patriarchs and Prophets tells us this, that Joseph was so excited about knowing where his brothers were at and so interested in finding them that he actually didn't eat or drink for the 15-mile walk that he took from Shechem to Dothan. So he's very interested in finding them, not only to report to his dad, but the family affection. He actually did have love for his brothers but also the fact that he knew his brothers were gonna have some food and water for him at least, and he was exhausted, and he was ready for food and water, and he gets very excited. Warm affections start coming to him when he sees his brothers in the field, and he says, I'm gonna be able to eat and drink and socialize with them and see what's been going on for a couple of months, and so he's happy coming down there, finding his brothers, and they see him coming with that coat. And they have far different feelings towards him. 
and he is shocked when with angry looks, they beat him up, rip this coat off of him, rip it to shreds. They're going to kill him. There's mob mentality. He's begging them, what are you guys doing? Please, please, what are you guys doing? And then, instead of killing them, they throw him into a pit that he can't get out of and leave him there. And then, a few hours later, a fate worse than death comes to him. It was known as a fate worse than death to be sold into slavery. And they sell him into slavery. What does Joseph have now? He was, fairly, he was very protected by his father. And now he's got post-traumatic stress disorder. It is, you know, there's a lot of PTSD out there. And a lot of emotional issues come from PTSD. In fact, uh, uh, I don't know if I, did I mention it to you? Yeah, I did mention it last night about how over 20 veterans a day take their lives, most of them with PTSD. And there's all sorts of trauma. There's more trauma and abuse than ever before in human history. And now Joseph has this at a tender young age, suffering trauma and abuse from family members. Family members that he had affections and positive feelings towards. Let me show you some quotes about this story. Let's see. Bitterly he wept. As he's going to Egypt, he's one mountain over from where his father's tents are at. And he knows where he's at. And so he's thinking of his father. Bitterly he wept at the thought of that loving father and his loneliness and affliction. Again, the scene at Dothan came up before him. He saw his angry brothers and felt their fierce glances bent upon him. The stinging, insulting words that had met his agonized entreaties were ringing in his ears. With a trembling heart, he looked forward to the future. So he's got anxiety. He's got panic. And the movie is already starting to play. He can't believe what happened. And so when you can't believe what happened, it's very much more likely that there's triggers in this movie plays. And by the way, this movie played multiple times in Egypt. He saw this over and over again because he was reminded why he was there and all of this happening to him. What a change in situation from the tenderly cherished son to the despised and helpless slave. Alone and friendless, what would be his lot in the strange land to which he was going? For a time, Joseph gave himself up to uncontrolled grief and terror. So now, with this dysfunctional home, the favored Joseph has not been spared, and he has severe emotional issues induced by these angry men. So he gives himself up to uncontrolled grief and terror. How was Joseph able to turn around? Look at this. By the way, speaking of his upbringing, before we get to the turnaround, this is a couple of paragraphs over from this great chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets. It was talking about the effects of the favoritism of Jacob on him. They had a very close relationship. But the effects of this favoritism were manifest also in his own character. 
Faults had been encouraged that were now to be corrected. He was becoming self-sufficient in what else? Exacting. We might say that even though Joseph was a very good boy, he had become legalistic. He wanted to obey his, his father. He did obey his father. He recognized the advantages of all that. He recognized the advantages of keeping the Ten Commandments. But he was actually becoming a little self-sufficient because he was able to do all of this. And he was becoming a little exacting, meaning a little more critical of others around him. Accustomed to the tenderness of his father's care, he felt that he was unprepared to cope with the difficulties before him in the bitter, uncared-for life of a stranger and a slave. And he recognized, I have no ability to cope. I have had a great upbringing. I've had a great father. I've had someone who's protected me. I've had a, um, a lot of advantages. But now I'm in a situation where I have no ability to be able to handle this. So what turned him around? Then his thoughts turned to his father's God. Does it say it was his God? It wasn't his God. He was being raised in a home that taught him structure and taught him the advantages of rules and the advantages of having the right behavior and those type of things. But his thoughts turned to his father's God. He had been taught to love and fear him. Often in his father's tent, he had listened to the story of the vision that Jacob saw as he fled from his home in exile and a fugitive. He had been told of the Lord's promises to Jacob and how they had been fulfilled, how in the hour of need, the angels of God had come to instruct, comfort, and protect him, and he had learned of the love of God in providing for men a redeemer. Let's back up in Genesis. To the story that Joseph heard repeatedly. Here it is, Genesis 28, verse 12. This was after Jacob had totally messed up. Jacob had deceived his own father and had tried to force a prophecy to come true. By the way, beware of forcing God's prophecies to come true. Verse 12, and after he's totally messed up and now he's separated from his mother that he loved, he also loved his father as well, but especially there was a close relationship between Jacob and his mother and he was never to see his mother again. He's having to run away. Verse 12, he dreamed and behold a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold the angels of God ascending and descending. And then the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, God of Abraham, thy father. God of Isaac. And then he has this promise. And so had Joseph ever, you know, gotten visions like this from God? No. No. He hadn't. How did he know? He only knew because of the testimony of his father. And here's one of the points I'd like you to take from this service is many of these people in dysfunctional homes and places are never going to have their thoughts turn to the God that turned Joseph around unless they hear about it from you. 
you have a story to tell. You have a story of how the Lord has entered into your life and what he has done for you. Don't be silent about that. Share it with others because in their time of distress and need, they might remember, yes, Mr. So-and-so told me about how the Lord entered into his life in a tough situation. Mrs. So-and-so told me about how the Lord entered into her life in a tough situation. And maybe God can help me as well. Notice. See if we can get it. Now all these precious lessons came vividly before him. Joseph believed that the God of his fathers would be his God. He then and there gave himself fully to the Lord and he prayed that the keeper of Israel would be with him in the land of his exile. His soul thrilled. Notice, this is still on the same trip. It was a long trip. But his soul thrilled with the high resolve to now prove himself true to God and under all circumstances to act as became a subject of the king of heaven. He would serve the Lord with a what type of heart? An undivided heart. He would meet the trials of his lot with fortitude and perform every duty with fidelity. One day's experience had been the turning point in Joseph's life. Its terrible calamity had transformed him from a petted child to a man thoughtful, courageous, and self-possessed. And here's what I have found repeatedly in dealing with those that have had trauma, abuse, addictions, afflictions, that when they turn to God and they find the true secret to success, they actually become more emotionally intelligent than those who have never had trauma or abuse. Because they have gone through the fire and they have been able to correct their thoughts and they've been able to have that balanced mind, but it does not happen without the frontal lobe being involved, the spiritual part of the brain. And so this is why much of psychiatry, we don't see much results because the spiritual part is neglected, the part that God can play a role in. He had learned in a few hours that which years might not otherwise have taught him. So in other words, if he didn't have that trauma and abuse, he might have gone years as a legalist, and he would have ended up having problems and issues. But this experience put him to a decision-making point. Is the God of my father going to be my God? Story goes on. Tempted and betrayed by his own beautiful boss. Another beauty enters the situation. And by the way, Joseph had a lot of success as a slave because he was of fidelity and because he was such a good, honest person. Potiphar put him in charge of his entire household and knew he could trust everything with him. He knew he had that character. And by the way, Joseph was very forward, just like Jacob was very forward in telling his stories about God, Joseph was very forward in telling everyone that he served the God of heaven, even though it was very unpopular. 
And we're told that was a key ingredient. Had he kept his, the serving of the Lord surreptitious and under the rug, we're told that he would have been defeated by many temptations that came from Egypt. But he knew he had made a claim. I serve the God of heaven, and when those temptations came, he did not want to go against God, nor did he want to go against his own word. He had publicly stated that he served the God of heaven. And that's why even under the most severe trials and temptations, including Mrs. Potiphar, who had read Red Book and Cosmopolitan, and she knew how to seduce, and he's working in, the own, in her own home, and now he's called to the bedroom to do some work there, and Potiphar's wife knows exactly how to do it. In fact, it's interesting. If you read that chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets, talk about anxiety. Who was it that had anxiety on their faces? Anyone remember the story? It was not just those two who were there. Those were the only two human beings that were there, but there were angels witnessing the scene, and the good angels had absolute looks of anxiety on their faces because they weren't sure how this was going to turn out. They had not seen men be successful in resisting that type of powerful temptation. And so they're looking at this and saying, what is going to happen? And Joseph stood true even though he knew he was going to either be killed or going to prison for it. And he said, how can I do this sin against, the God, against God? And while she was trying to take his clothes off in a very seductive, forceful way, he, she let, he let her have the coat so he could get out of there and run. He didn't sit there and consider it. He said, I need to get out of here now. And then to prison he goes. And then he's even betrayed in prison. We're told the highest evidence of nobility in a Christian is what? Self-control. He who under abuse or cruelty fails to maintain a calm and trustful spirit robs God of his right to reveal in him his own perfection of character. Let's not complain about the cruelty or abuse that might come our way. Let's actually be like Paul and Silas and praise God, because we're told this is, a, this is a promise that's made only to those who've given themselves over to God. In fact, I told this to one of our participants in the program yesterday. She, uh, this week, decided to give herself fully and completely into the Lord's cause. Seven suicide attempts. Seven suicide attempts, and serious attempts. And after coming to the spiritual part, which she was resistant to at first, but now she has been completely open to the Lord in her life. She says, I want to make a public confession, and I want to be baptized. And so at Weimar Institute this afternoon, I won't, won't even be able to see it. <laughs> uh, uh, she is going to be baptized, and they're going to video it and send it to her church, and she's actually going to go into... Um, she already has the church picked out uh, that she's going to uh, in, uh, in Texas. But she, what I told her, because she has been tempted above what she's been able multiple times. 
all the time. In fact, most people are tempted way above what they're able to. But God has a promise that when you give yourself over to him, he's going to filter every temptation. And he's not going to allow you to be tempted above what you're able. And so when you realize that he's allowing you to undergo cruelty and abuse, that tells you that he thinks pretty highly of you. Because he knows that you can be a representative of him. No one has been treated more cruelty and with more abuse than he has been. And so he who, under abuse or cruelty, fails to maintain a calm and trustful spirit robs God of his right to reveal in him his own perfection of character. And so into prison he goes. And in prison he rises to the top again because of his fidelity And now a good friend of his who he allows out of prison with a dream and those sorts of things doesn't even tell the king about him. And he's serving the king every day for two years. Unthankful, ungracious man. But finally, when the pressure is there, the man reveals it. And now he has to meet up with his cruel brothers again. This movie is played in prison. It's been played in Potiphar's home. It's been played multiple times. And these brothers who absolutely hated him are now coming before him. And they have a, and he has a mental filter, in a way. His mental filter is the way those brothers used to be. And so when they bow down before him, all of those thoughts come back. But instead of going with what he knew them to be, he intentionally and forcefully looks for evidence to support a different way of thinking. And by the way, this is a crucial element of getting rid of a cognitive distortion called mental filter. We all can have our filters, but we need to challenge our filters and look for solid evidence to support a different way of thinking when we have these negative mental filters come in. The first thing he asks is, where is your brother? There's no Benjamin there, and you know what he's thinking. They've either killed him or they put him into slavery. They did the same thing because he came from my mom, and my mom was envied, and there was all sorts of dysfunction. I bet he doesn't even exist anymore, or he's in some other country as a slave. But he gives them the benefit of the doubt because at least they told him about him. If they wouldn't have even mentioned him, he would have known what would have happened, but they told him about it and said, okay, Bring him here. Next time, you're not getting any food unless he comes. And then after he comes, he's still looking for a different way of thinking about his brothers. And he devises this plan that Benjamin is going to be the one found to be the the thief. And Benjamin's going to prison. And he's going to see how they deal with that. And they're going to say, okay, fine. He'll know what they're like. But instead, he finds out these men have changed. They're not the same men that they were before. They were filled with hatred. They were filled with evil. There was all sorts of problems in them, but they have actually become converted men, particularly Judah. And when he sees that and sees how they're willing to give up their life, for his flesh and blood. That's when he reveals himself to him. He said, I'm Joseph. As soon as they hear that, they say, we better get out of here. 
We know what he's going to think about us. We were terrible men. But Joseph said, yeah, you were evil. But for every disappointment, there is an appointment, and God has turned it into good. And come here, and he embraces all of them. From PTSD and severe trauma and jealousy and envy and all the dysfunction, the family is restored. And now they have to go and tell Jacob what they did. They had kept him from him for all these years, and now they have to tell Jacob the full story. And Jacob also, like Christ, forgives them. I mean, can you imagine having your own son, sons violate one of your most affected other sons and then lie to you and all of this sort of stuff? He could have actually taken revenge on them even then, and he rightfully probably should have, but instead, the mercy and compassion. And so I want to leave with you. I know... Oh, I've gone over. I'm sorry. I was looking at the clock back there, and it wasn't correct. Um, What I want to leave with you is that God, despite all the dysfunction in this world, God doesn't want it to stay that way. He wants us to get rid of our distorted thoughts, treat others with love and compassion, and tell our story. And it might change a soul, like Jacob's story changed Joseph. Does Jesus care? I'd like you, in contemplation, we won't have time to sing it, but um, look at hymn number 181. Does Jesus care when my heart is broken and sad and abused? And Joseph could tell the answer, oh yes, I know he cares. Those brothers could tell it, and the others as well. God does care, and he wants us to be restored.